Fromer Travel Podcast. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. And boy, oh boy, am I excited for this show because we have not only one of my favorite travel writers as our first guest, but one of my favorite human beings. His name is Don George. He is a distinguished editor and writer, and you can't keep Don down. Even when nobody's traveling, (laughs) he finds a way to travel, although he does it safely. Let's just say that. And he has a great new book out called Wanderlust in the Time of Coronavirus, Dispatches from Traveling a Year Close to Home. I think I messed that up, but welcome to the travel (laughs) show, Don. Can you give us the right, can you give us the right uh, title? The the main title, you were perfect, Wanderlust in the Time of coronavirus. And then the subtitle is Dispatches from a Year of Traveling Close to Home. Dispatches. Okay. So I got a, a From C a plus. year I, of traveling I didn't close to home. fully fail. <laughs> Not at <So> all. <laughs> dispatches from a year of traveling close to home. That sounds like an oxymoron to travel close to home. It how does, how, how it? did you do that? Yeah. So- as, as you and I were both in the same boat when the pandemic hit, I mean, lifelong travelers and travel writers, and maybe even more than you, I, I travel a, a lot. I travel five months a year um, wow. for various things. And so on January 1st of 2020, I was looking at my calendar, anticipating you know an amazing year of, I think I was going to 18 countries or 18 weeks of travel to eight countries, I think it was. And then, you know, 10 weeks later, the world went into lockdown. And um, my reaction to that was what it normally is when things happen that I don't know quite how to deal with. I, I turned to my journal and I start writing in my journal. And I wrote an essay about what do I do as a travel writer when I can't travel? And um, I, I wrote that and I kind of wrote about how, tra- how important travel is to me and maybe some strategies I could do to keep my wanderlust alive. And then I, as I think and you did know, that I'm, become I edited, the opening. Sorry, did that become that the became, opening to the book? Exactly. So that became the opening to the book. And, and I edit the blog for Geographic Expeditions, GOX, mm-hmm. the an adventure travel company based in San Francisco. I showed what I'd written in my journal to some of my colleagues and said, you know, do you think this would be worth publishing on the blog? And and they said, yeah, of course, that definitely. So I sort of reframed it and rewrote it more as a a public piece and published it on the blog. And the reaction was incredible. It was really extraordinary. We got a huge outpouring from readers. So I wrote another essay two weeks later and another essay two weeks later. And I just was beginning to navigate the world of lockdown as a traveler and travel writer through these essays. And then the restrictions eased and we suddenly could travel a little bit. And I began to visit. I realized, I mean, as you know, Polly, because I spent half the year on the other half of the planet, you know, halfway around the globe, there's all these amazing Northern California things that I never get to see that people travel halfway around the globe to see, like Muir Muir Woods. (laughs) And you are in those. You're in one of the most beautiful areas on earth. You're, you live in San Francisco. Right. You have all of Northern California at your feet. Before we get into what you traveled to see, I want to talk about the first essay because mm. it sounds like that is very philosophical and might have 
some wisdom for our daily lives, even if we're not on the road in it. Is, it am I guessing correctly? I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always suspicious of my own wisdom, but I basically said one travel is incredibly important to me. Travel is my religion. You know, as mm-hmm. I actually say in, in the way of Wanderlust, that collection of my travel stories, you know, the best of Don George. I do say I, travel is my religion. I really feel that way. And so suddenly I was not able to practice my religion. And it's like, yeah. how do I, how do you keep your, your faith soul alive? Soul alive. Your, your soul, soul alive. Your so yeah. I had a few different strategies. One was very, very, very close to home travel, like wandering around my yard and looking at the flowers and kind of taking stock of, and you know, it's true, the wonders close to home that we just tend to overlook because we don't pay attention to them, they're pretty amazing. I have all these great blooming things in my yard and I began to pay attention to them and the huh. neighbor's yard and you know, walk up the street and see. So there were, there were wonders to be found there. But then I also looked around my study where I'm talking to you from right now and there's a, there's a plate from Greece and there's a bowl from Japan and, and there's a, a wooden carving from Mexico. And the world is all around me here in my study. So I began to kind of relive my travels that way uh, and go through my journals. And so I was keeping my wanderlust alive in various ways, reminding myself that at some point, again, we will be able to travel. This isn't permanent. It's temporary. Back then, I thought it was a lot more temporary than it's turned out Didn't to be. Didn't we all? Yeah. Boy, yeah. yeah. But that's how, that was the first essay was kind of about how important travel is to me. Suddenly, I can't do it. So how do I keep that wanderlust alive in the world around me? Yeah. There was a terrible, terrible movie with Anne Hathaway that actually was filmed during the uh, pandemic. Uh, and she is stuck at home in England. She decides to do a heist, as you do during a pandemic. But, <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. But her husband discovers uh, that growing in his backyard are poppies. And so he also does a drug trip. But anyway, uh, just I don't know why this, this came to me <laughs> when you I were talking about. <laughs> no, you don't. I turned it off. It's not great. It's not great. But anyway. Oh. So. So you started exploring the area you were in, but I mean, as we were saying earlier, yes, you live in one of the most glorious parts of the United States, if not the world, but you also were there at a time of terrible fires. And did Mm. that cramp your ability to go out and explore? And did you write about that or was that not part of the book? The fires happened a little bit after some of the initial explorations. The fires, the fires were terrible. They impacted life. I was not directly affected by the fires. I knew, certainly, I know people who were affected directly by the fires and it impacted the whole Bay Area. I mean, we had those days of orange, orange, eerie orange skies, really terrible. So, and actually one of the stories, crazily enough, I, I went to an area, I wrote a story about the area Three days later, one of the main fires started and actually was threatening the area that I had written about. And the, my blog post was scheduled to be published the next day. And of course, wow. we held on to it and we just held on to it and held on to it and held on to it because we didn't even know if this area was going to survive or not. Happily, two, two months, area? well, two months later, finally, yeah. the fire was put out. It took two months to put the fire out totally. 
but the area was saved. Everything, I mean, the, the towns were saved. The, you know, the, the hillsides were burned, but that's what nature does. And, um, and then, so we ended up publishing the story with an editor's note saying this was actually written before the fires. Thank goodness the fires are over and this area wasn't, you know, ter- the people in the area weren't terribly affected. And so now we're going to publish this story. But it was happening all around. And that was very sobering and sad. I'm sure. Especially because when you go out and explore a place, I mean, it takes a bit of your heart. You know, it, it must have felt Absolutely. even more visceral for this to be happening in a place you just were at. Well, exactly. And when I went out two months later, when the fire was had been put out, I went out and I was moved to tears. I mean, that so many, there were signs in every driveway saying, thank you, firefighters. Thank you, mm. first responders. Thank you for saving our home. I mean, it literally just kept passing one after another after another. Wh- which so area was this? Um, this was uh, in Marin County, sort of northern Marin. Uh-huh. So uh, it was, the, the Point Reyes Peninsula was the area I was writing about. And uh, Lagunitas was one of the communities I, I actually went through and, and there were signs posted there. And so there was kind of gratitude, there was this mixture of gratitude in the air, but also the still the particles from the, the smoke. And it was just a very moving a topsy-turvy kind of experience, but they serve the people survived and, and the houses survived. And, uh, so it was kind of a triumph in that sense. The firefighters saved what they really wanted to save. Um, but yeah, it was tremendously moving. Did what you write change because of the fire? Did you go back and rework it or did it go up as you had originally done it? So what we decided, what I decided was in the editor's note to say, this is what I had written. We're so grateful that the area was, that the people were okay. And um, we decided to just go ahead and publish what I had written because it was grounded in the the time that I went there. Um, And then I gave a little report in the editor's note that I was just there and this is what it felt like to be there now. And, you know, people were out on the streets, they were laughing, they were talking, they were eating outside. I mean, it was kind of life had gone back to normal. And actually, the areas that I literally had visited and written about were not affected by the fires. So even driving back to the area that I'd written about, I could not see any evidence of the fires, which wow. is kind of amazing. Oh, well, but if great. I had driven you know, four hillsides over, I would mm. have seen a blackened hillside. But it just happened that what I'd written about wasn't affected. So we just published it that way. Now, when you decided what to explore... Were the were these all new places for you, or or were some the places you'd been to in the past and were looking at with fresh eyes? Mostly the latter, in a way, all all were the latter. But I did things that I'd never done before. One of the first things I did was to walk across the Golden Gate Bridge, which I've never hmm. done. I've lived here for forty years. I've wow. never walked across the Golden Gate Bridge. I've you know I've driven across it countless times. But I never made the the pilgrimage, the walk. So I did that, right. and it was fantastic. It 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 made it was an entirely different bridge. When you drive across it, you're you're going from point A to point B, and the bridge is a means to get there, and that's kind of all it is. But when you walk across the bridge, that is point A and point B. You're you're on the bridge to be on the bridge. And I noticed, 
know, the rivets and the girders. And I imagined a human being standing where I was standing, actually pounding those rivets in or positioning the girders. And and I, and I realized this is a man-made thing. And you kind of think of yeah. it as a miracle, a monument. It just exists. It was never actually built. It's been there since time immemorial. And then I realized somebody stood right where I'm standing right now when this was still an unfinished bridge and pounded this rivet right here. And that made it an entirely different thing for me. And now whenever I drive across it, I still recall that feeling of somebody made this, human beings made this. And um, I have a whole different appreciation. It's become sacred for me in a way that it really wasn't before. I remember I've walked it. When I walked it, I was in a crowd of tourists. It was elbow to Mm -hmm. elbow. (laughs) And so it must be such a different experience right now to be walking across the bridge and, you know, only with other people from your area. Exactly. I mean, it's incredibly different. There were probably a dozen people that I passed on the on the bridge and a whole morning there, I, I passed perhaps a dozen people. And, um, and they're all Bay Area people, pretty, as far as I could tell, it seemed like, just from the way they were sort of carrying themselves and the familiarity that they had about them with the bridge. So it's a very different experience. And it makes you realize that this is happening in a way all around the world that, you know, the Venetians are suddenly rediscovering Venice yeah. and <laughs> the, the Bay area people are rediscovering the golden gate bridge. So it's, it, it's, it's an interesting time to be a travel yeah. traveler, travel writer. Well, that was um, a, that's a classic experience you had that that's a, that's absolutely. an experience that every tourist should have. What was a weird thing that you did and wrote about that maybe tourists wouldn't do, but that you enjoyed or was or was everything you did recommendable? Well, the very first thing I did, which was right when restrictions were sort of just beginning to be lifted, there was a, a package for me in Redwood City that for various reasons I had to go down and pick up in person. Redwood City is south of San Francisco Airport. It's about an hour drive from my house. And I literally at this that point had not been in my car except for maybe grocery shopping and probably just grocery shopping hmm. for a few months. And but I had to pick up this package. So I got in my car and I got I drove out and it was like a whole it was like a new world. It was wow extraordinary to me. I I drove across the Bay Bridge to San Francisco and then south from San Francisco down. And everything looked new. It was that feeling of wonder and magic. I even, and I wrote about this in the book, but I I exulted at the billboards. I was like, signs in the sky. Oh my goodness. Wow. (laughs) Look at that. Someone's talking directly to me in the sky. Isn't that interesting? This kind of childlike sense of wonder was reawakened. Mm. And the Bay Bridge seemed like a, a ballerina to me, a beautiful white ballerina in a frilly dress, kind of, you know, grand jeting over the, the bay. And um, it was just everything looked fresh and new and magical and amazing. And, and yeah. that was really fun. And that was a totally pedestrian. Well, that was a totally not special road trip just to go down and pick up a package. When I got to San Francisco International Airport, I had to pass it. Tears were in my eyes. I was like, uh, I used to come here, you know, 12 times a year. I haven't been here in forever. 
And, and it felt like a vintage travel poster to me. There were planes lined up on the tarmac. And it just looked like one of those old 1920s posters of, you know, the travel world that used to be kind of. Yeah, the glamour of travel. The glamour we're of seeing travel. seeing it from, from afar. <laughs> exactly. So is one of your essays in San Francisco? Did you, did you spend much time in the city itself? That's a great question. And I thought about it, but I ended up not doing that yet. You know, I, I still could do it. I'm still writing the essays. Um, <laughs> so I, I could still do it. But I have I I thought about it and ended up not doing San Francisco. I did Muir Woods and I did Point Reyes Peninsula and Stinson Beach and kind of iconic right. places that, that travelers would go to as well as locals. And I thought a lot about San Francisco, and I think I will do it at some point, but I haven't done it yet. Well, it's an ebook, which is the hot thing you're on trend (laughs) on, uh, because everybody's ordering them during the pandemic. Actually, they're they're way up. I know as a book publisher. Uh, So, how do people get the book? The best way is probably to go to geoex dot com. Just go to the blog, which is called Wanderlust. And there's a, a, a link on the blog that will give, takes you to a page where you fill in your name and email address and then click on a uh, click to get access to the ebook. That's the easiest way to get it. And I'm super pleased I'd never done an ebook and, and I'm super pleased that it, it does look like a book when it magically oh, yeah. appears on your, your laptop it, or, your, or your screen. It's, it's a book and you can turn the pages and then. <laughs> I'm really and thrilled. underline uh, things and, and make, make things, the fonts right. bigger. Yeah, no, right, I love right. ebooks. It's a um, great thing. So yeah, I'm really thrilled to have this collection out because it just feels like, like you said at the very beginning of the show, that it was not a wasted year by any means. Something really positive came out of it. And I'm, I'm thrilled about that. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to read it. I did a Larry King. I, I haven't gotten to read it yet, but I interviewed it anyway because I knew you'd be great. Thank you so much, Don, for appearing on The Travel Show. Uh, thank you, Pauline. It's wonderful to be talking with you. And, you know, thank you for all the great work that you always do. I really, really sure. appreciate it. And that was Don George. I should note at this point that I always read the books before I do these interviews because, frankly... If I don't like the book, I don't usually do the interview. But there was a snafu getting me the book. And I know Don's work. I've known it for years. Uh, He's one of the most prolific, expert, excellent travel writers working. And so I took it on faith this time that his book was great. And I'm sure it is. Uh, But I just wanted to explain that. The next guest's book I have read. (laughs) I read it actually about a year ago because um, we had him on the radio show back then. But there's been so much interest in the national parks for obvious reasons that I decided to have John Waterman back on the show. He is the author of The Atlas of the National Parks, which is a gorgeous National Geographic book with 200 maps, including maps of the newest national parks. Uh, so in that way, it's it's a really, really useful book, but it's also a book to dream on. It's filled with beautiful photos and lots of lists of superlatives to help you plan where you want to go 
And since so many folks are going to be planning probably nature-based vacations for this summer, we decided to have him back. So here is John Waterman. John, it is a delight to have you back on the Fromer Travel Show. Well, thanks for having me. And you're a man I bet a lot of people want to speak with because you are an expert in the national parks and they've gotten a lot of love and and even more attention in the last year because it's impossible for Americans to visit anywhere else. I'm assuming you are going to say that's how it should be, that they are our greatest treasures, right? Well, they are. We just have to figure out how to protect them at the same time that we're drawing so many millions of people into these treasures. Yeah. Uh, There was a good law passed under Trump, much to my surprise, that that, uh, gave better funding to the national parks. Do you think that will help? It couldn't have come at a, at a better time because the parks had been underfunded for years. Congress hadn't seen fit to appropriate necessary maintenance dollars to many of these parks uh, for chronic repairs and maintenance of such things as roads and even trails in some instances or, or in other instances, facilities were damaged by storms or hurricanes. And so now with that funding in place, uh, these things uh, can better be yeah. addressed. Um, yeah. No, I was I was very, I think it was called the Great American Outdoors Act or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wrote about it at the time. I was really, really pleased that it passed because we do need to be better caretakers of the national parks. But one of the reasons people know to do that is they go and visit. So. I would say this seems to be the year to go, but are certain parks getting too much love because of coronavirus? Obviously, you want to go to a park because you want to be away from other people and out in nature and on these gorgeous trails by yourself. Are certain parks not very good for that right now? Well, um, I think that the answer is that park lovers all need to do a bit of research and find out those parks that aren't getting so much traffic and to avoid the uh, gems like Grand Canyon and uh, Great Smokies National Park and find some of the lesser visited places that might require a bit more travel, like dry tortugas off the edge of Florida or Aya Royale in Michigan. Uh, These parks in the lower 48, both have very little traffic. And it's a place where you can go see parks that are really still in kind of a pristine state of nature. Mm. But even the the more crowded parks, with a little bit of effort and and getting away from the front country and into the back country, you can still experience these parks in a pristine state. Yeah. by getting away from the popular places. And, and of course, you can't expect to go to Yellowstone and see, and watch uh, Old Faithful and have it to yourself. You have to be a little bit uh, more thoughtful, I think, about where you go. Right. And I, I, I read about Yosemite once that I think 95% of the visitors never go beyond the valley and they don't see the vast majority of the park. So in certain parks, 
it's not even that difficult to get away from the crowds, even the most popular ones. Yeah, this is true. And it, it, in a sense, it's one of the conundrums of the national parks because we built them uh so that the every man and every person can experience the splendor of the parks, but largely through these incredible roadways. And so typically that's where all the people stay. But ironically, that's if you really want to get to know these parks, you really have to park your car and load up your backpack and, and get out and walk to some of these places uh, that are seldom seen. And uh, that's I think that is one of the greatest draws to these national parks. And that's the way I've had the opportunity to experience them. Well, you were once a ranger, right? Yes, I was. And in fact, I went back and, and worked as a volunteer ranger several years ago in one of my favorite parks um, because I can't seem to get enough of it. Which park is that? That's Denali National Park. Oh, wow. In Alaska, um, mm -hmm. home of the highest mountain, of course, in North America. And I used to be a ranger on that mountain in the early 80s. And I went back four years ago and uh, climbed the mountain again on a, on a park service patrol. And we did uh, a little bit of rescue work and helped out wow. some climbers and cleaned up the mountain a bit. Um, but it was great to be back. I have to say, I was blessed to go to Denali a couple of years back with my daughter. And it broke my heart seeing the cruise passengers not really getting enough of time in, in Denali. Uh, a lot of them would arrive on these big buses. And in order to go into the park, the tundra is so delicate. You, you're, you have to go on the park buses. You can't drive your own cars. And they would just get onto these buses and then just drive around and see things through the window for, through the day. Whereas my daughter and I, because we went there for a couple of days, we didn't just go for one day. We were able to sign up for what I think were the most intense, interesting uh, ranger-led tours that I've ever been on. And it was so great because you're out in the middle of the park and there's nobody else around. Uh, it was uh, an amazing experience in Denali. I, I'm so glad you got to experience that. And that's the, exactly what, what uh, I believe in, that you have to take the time to, to get to know these places. And in fact, the interpretive staffs at our national parks are peerless in mm -hmm. terms of their knowledge of the local flora and fauna. And it's a great way to, to learn about these parks. Now, th that said, that experience you describe of, of the cruise passengers riding the shuttle bus, it still is one of the most amazing wildlife experiences on a good day that you could have in North America because you can ride that shuttle bus for 50, 60 miles and see more megafauna, bears and caribou and moose and wolves chasing the foxes and the caribou without even getting out of the bus. Sure, uh, sure. And, and that is, in a, it's one of the saving graces of these parks is that we actually contain 95% of, of the visitation in cruise ships or in shuttle buses on the roadways. And uh, those hearty few of us who want to get out and do what you did with your daughter have a, a, an opportunity to see something even more compelling. Yeah, well, she was about nine at the time. And one of the trip, one of the uh, ranger-led tours we did 
there was a scientific component to it. We were asked to help collect scat, which being a nine-year-old, oh my goodness, did she <laughs> love that. <laughs> and we had to walk in, in kind of a column because the tundra was so delicate that they, they didn't want us wandering off and really changing the landscape just by our footprints. It, it was a it was a, a rapturous experience. It was it was really amazing. I, I, I know of what you speak. I took my 12 year old there a few years ago and we had a very similar experience. Um, hmm. And he was shooting pictures with a with a camera and he got to see the tallest mountain in North America and tried to imagine climbing it. And uh, for a child and an adult, it's a world of wonders there, as many of the parks are. So what do you think is this may be an odd question, but what do you think is the weirdest natural na- national park? Where, what do you see them? Where do you see the most unexpected sites? Well, I keep going to them. Um, <laughs> re- recently, I went with my other son to Sequoia National Park because I'd never had a chance to actually lay my eyes on the largest tree in the world by volume uh, there in Sequoia National Park, and sometimes. I think we're all drawn to the superlatives, the right. extremes of things and being able to see the greatest waterfall, the hugest tree in the world. But this was an exceptionally compelling experience to look up at this tree and imagine there was no older, bigger living thing in the world um, wow. than, than this tree that we are looking at. Uh, but the Park Service has to hide the identities of there is one tree, I think it's called Methuselah, which is the very, very oldest known to man. And it's, is it in Sequoia National Park or is it in, I can't remember which park it's in, but they do not identify it because they yeah, don't that, want that, people that is, acting that's badly. Cone, uh, and that, you find that the oldest trees there in uh, Great Basin National Park ah. in, in Nevada. And the opportunity to sort of connect with those bits of nature, whether they're weird. I, I can't t- go back to your question. I can't. I, I think more of the parks in terms of their sense of wonder to me, but um, there are certainly weird things, too. I've seen tourists doing very weird things in the <laughs> national parks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's the downside of the parks, I guess. So if uh, to, this is the year, as I said at the beginning, where, where we are staying closer to home as travelers, where we're not going abroad, if somebody wanted to replace a, this is going to sound odd, but a Paris holiday with a trip to a national park, they wanted romance and great beauty, where would they go? Which park would you send them to? Wow. I think that I would leave that to the imagination of the the traveler, of that romantic, inclined nature lover to do the research and read up on the parks. And whether it be a canoe trip across Jenny Lake and Grand Teton National Park or taking the shuttle boat all the way out to Isle Royale and seeing the the wolves out there on this little island in the middle of Lake Superior mm. going snorkeling on dry tortugas. Now, I'm naming a couple of parks that have the least visitation, but it, you could go to some of these bigger parks like Grand Canyon National Park. And I think that one of the, the most incredible trips in the world is 
to sign up for a week long or 10 day or a two week trip through the heart of the Grand Canyon on a raft, which is like a journey through time, looking at the layers of rocks above you. And meanwhile, being thrilled to death going through the rapids. I know in a normal year, it probably would be too late to get onto one of those rafting trips for this coming summer. Has that changed at all because of COVID? Good question. There are probably still spaces left in the fall, which is a great time to do that trip when the heat of the summer has subsided a little bit. But that that's just one example of many types of trips, whether you find a horse packer to take you into the backcountry or climb a mountain or just get out into the backcountry. And you don't have yeah. to go to those parks with grizzly bears and life-threatening, perilous adventures. There's plenty of nature to be seen at its well, best without risking your life. Let's talk about that because I, I know that probably whenever we say just go into the backcountry, maybe a quarter of our readers are going to say, well, I can't do that. I have a mobility impairment or I don't know how to do that. I've never been out into nature. I'm a city person. For for those city folks who do want to have a nature experience, where's a great place for nature light? Which park best uh, caters to that type of va- vacation? Well, we've already mentioned Denali and that exemplary wildlife experience by traveling the shuttle bus. And there are so many of these parks where you can do that, where you don't have to brave the rigors of weather or backcountry trail use or carrying a heavy backpack. I, you know, I think of Glacier National Park in Montana, and I know that's that's a stretch for many people. But the going to the Sun Road through Glacier National Park is a, is an amazing experience, and seeing the mountain goats from your car. Most of these parks have shuttle buses. Acadia in Maine. Mm has an amazing road system that they spent millions and millions of dollars and lots of engineering wizardry to build uh, in order to to sort of introduce visitors to the... the, Yeah. When I think of uh, Glacier and Denali, for that matter, I think of those as two destinations that you want to go see now before they change because of climate change. Having been a ranger and then having visited recently, did you see drastic changes in Denali? Yes, I saw things that I had never seen before because it, a couple of decades had passed since I'd climbed the mountain. And I saw lakes up on the glacier above 8,000 feet that I'd never seen before. In other words, the ice and the snow were melting and forming these huge ponds which I never saw 20, 25, 30 years ago. And in Glacier National Park in, in Montana, there are some predictions that all of those glaciers, which the park is named after, there are more than a couple of dozen of them left, could be gone by 2030 in another wow. decade. Wow. Um, so th- these parks are, are canaries in the coal mine for the sorts of changes that we're seeing all over the world now. So, right. um, of course, this has made places like Glacier all the more popular because people want to see those glaciers before they disappear. Yeah. 
Well, on that sad note, thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. It's a gorgeous book. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. Well, that is it for this week. As always, I thank you so much for listening. And I urge you, as always, to visit us in other places, too. You can do that by going to your local bookstore and picking up a Fromer guidebook. And it's so important to support bookstores right now. Uh, They really are community gathering places. They're places where the greatest art the human race ever created is kept safe and kept available to us. I, I don't want to sound too hyperbolic, but that's how I feel about bookstores. They are they are temples uh, to culture, and we need to support them during these dangerous and difficult times. So go to your local bookstore, go online, visit us at fromers.com. We have daily articles up there. I'm writing about one a day. So is Jason Cochran, which is why he's not always on this show anymore, because we're so darn busy. Uh, but he'll be back soon, I promise. Uh, so is Zach Thompson. Uh, so are many other folks. So we hope you'll visit us at Fromers.com. We hope you'll get a free subscription to the Fromers.com newsletter. It's a lot of fun to read, I promise. We never, ever sell your information to anybody else. So uh, I'll I'll end this commercial and say, as I always do at this at the end of the show, Uh, May I wish you all a hearty bon voyage.